0: Reading of God's Word. 1 Corinthians 16. We finished this series. We started at the end of January. For perspective, Martin Lloyd Jones, the great Welsh preacher, preached 108 sermons on Ephesians, it was only partway through chapter 6 when he died. He took 12 years to preach through the book of Romans, so all told, I don't think we're doing too bad. You join with me in prayer for the reading of God's word. Father, indeed, you are our helper, and by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would open our minds that as scriptures are read, as your word is proclaimed, that we would be led into your truth, that we would be taught your will, all for the sake of Jesus Christ, our risen Savior. For it is in his name we do pray. Amen. Amen. are reading from the ESV, beginning in verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts to Achaia. And they were devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanas and Fortunatus and Achaicus, the because they have made up for your absence, for they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of the ages send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the world, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Outside of the New Testament letters, one of the earliest Christian letters that we have is called 1 Clement. Clement was a bishop of Rome who very likely knew Peter and Paul... And he wrote his letter about 30 years after Paul's death. And he wrote his letter to the people of Corinth. Because they were having problems in their church. They were thriving, but they were still having conflict with their leaders. A well-versed story, it seems, in their tradition. Consistency is only a virtue if you're not messing up. And Paul, he ends his letter, by naming several leaders. Again, leaders whom they are probably having struggles with. And this is a normal part of writing a letter in in Greek society, kind of giving greetings from various people that you know. But Paul, in doing this, is also demonstrating the connectedness of the church, something that they are struggling to understand, struggling to come to terms with, Differing groups and leaders that they are, are wanting to align themselves with. And these Christians in Corinth need to understand they are a part of a much larger whole. The body of Christ, the church, is connected one to another. That is something that we need to know as well. We're often told as Americans that we're very individualistic. And the reason we're told that is because we're very individualistic. It's a part of our culture. It was a part of their church. And what we recognize immediately is there's no such thing as a private faith. Your baptism tells you that there is nothing private about your faith, that you belong to Jesus and you belong to others who belong to Jesus. Jesus came to establish his church and not a bunch of independent Bible study groups. One church. And because we are united to each other in Christ Jesus, we must work hard to maintain that unity last week we saw that because of the solidarity of believers paul was taking an offering for the jewish poor in judea and he's encouraging the corinthians to throw in their generous support he also has an expectation that they will share in the ministry of the gospel through a generous hospitality and a giving to these very labors these Corinthians, they think of themselves as a super gifted, super spiritual bunch. Paul is showing them that caring for others, stepping in and getting their hands dirty is all a part of the Christian life. They're boasting in speaking in tongues and prophesying. Paul saying these gifts have very little weight if the actions of faith are missing. And so he speaks to them of this shared responsibility And in part here in verse 12, he he speaks of Apollos. And Apollos, who was a very gifted speaker, had greatly impressed the Corinthians. We first meet Apollos in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 18. Reading from there, he says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, which is northern Africa towards Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. So there's an incompleteness in what he knows. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, again, that's where Corinth is, it's the Roman province, the district of southern Greece, said the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. And it happened that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So we see this interconnectedness of the missionary journey. Paul, Apollos was a very gifted and polished communicator. Likely, uh, Greek was his native tongue. And he brought style and substance together in such an impressive package that it turned the heads of the Corinthians. And rather than seeing Apollos, Peter, and Paul as ministers of the same gospel, the Corinthians divided into camps centered on these personalities. In reality, they're really all on the same team. The Corinthians may be divided, but Paul and Apollos are not. I'm sure many of you had this experience of trying to play one parent against the other growing up. You know, where you go to go to dad and you say, Hey, mom said I could spend the night at Billy's okay with you. Then you rush over to mom and say, Hey, Dad said I could spend the night at Billy's is okay with you. And the fatal flaw in this plan, besides being dishonest, is your parents talk to one another. So While you're grounded, you have ample time to consider the error of your ways. Paul and Apollos talk to one another. And they're not going to let these Corinthians play them one against the other and divide this singular effort of the gospel. And Paul seems to imply that Apollos is reluctant to come to them because of this. Notice there, he gives greetings from everyone, but Apollos is not mentioned, possibly because he doesn't want to add to the division of this cult of personality. And in verse 12 he says concerning our brother Apollos. Our brother shared. I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. So Apollos who they love. Is with Paul whom they love. Maybe a little less. But Paul and Apollos are in a shared ministry. And Paul has already said as it's coming of Timothy, the verse before this, he's saying, don't just labor in receiving big names. That all of these share in the responsibility of the ministry. Timothy's coming to be of service to them. Receive others. Be of service to the people of God that labor in our Christian faith. A response to grace, as I said last week, is a willingness to be inconvenienced for God's people. Now, Paul then shifts into his final exhortation he says, be watchful stand firm in the faith act like men be strong here we hear echoes of moses instruction to joshua who takes the people of god into the promised land be strong and courageous and then paul continues let all that you do be done in love love is the foundation for everything that paul has spoken to them about love is both an act within the community and it's the destination of this new community And this exhortation, it sounds very similar to what he said at the very last chapter, the end of chapter 15. There he said, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, Paul is calling on them to do the very things that he himself is already doing. He has modeled this for them. Paul has been watchful over the churches. He has poured himself out in prayer for them all. And Paul courageously stood firm in the face of serious opposition from those outside of the church as well as those inside the church. Paul has done all of this with a tremendous heart of love. The responsibility he asked them to share in, he has done. And this shared responsibility, he goes on to say, includes a submission to to leadership, to authority. He says in verse 15, I urge you, brothers, you know the household of Stephanas, were the first converts in Achaia, again, in Corinth. And they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints they are shared in this responsibility. Be subject or be submissive to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. And then he mentions Stephanus, Fortunatus, and Achaicus who, who've come, he said, who've made up for your absence. They've come from Corinth and they are there refreshing Paul. He says, give recognition to such people. And part of sharing then in the labor of Christians is in submitting, subjection. And he mentions by name people who they would certainly know came from their church, fellow workers of the Lord, representing the same Lord, the same message. And in verse 16, be submitted, be subject to Stephanus and men like him, those laboring with him. You see, in their arrogance, the Corinthians think they're above. Many of their teachers. They have it all figured out. Paul's saying no. You need examples better than yourself. You're not all that. Submission. Is both a great cure. For spiritual pride. And is also a great protection. For the believer. For the church. I had a friend of mine in grad school. His name Andre. He was a Lebanese priest. Part of the, the Syrian church. He could speak seven languages. It was amazing. After his first year completed of grad school, his bishop sent him to Detroit for one year to work in a Lebanese parish. And I remember I was so impressed with his willingness to just detach from his his studies and everything that he had come into a new community and everything established and just to be willing to leave. He was so matter-of-fact about it. He said, my bishop sent me and I must go. My studies can wait for a year. How often have you heard someone talk like that? He trusted that God was at work through those over him. He wasn't leaving under complaint, leaving his denomination. He wasn't. He just okay. I'm needed there. I'll go. I just observe this. How extraordinary that sounded to this American who didn't know seven languages. Yeah. Now, I, like you, know abuses have taken place by leaders abusing their authority. But there's also a major problem of people who have refused to submit to any authority. You, you hear things like this, and well, I'll go along with what you're saying as long as I agree to it. That, my friends, is not submission. We have a word for that, it's called agreement. If I agree with you, I will agree with you. Well, that's not submission. Submission only comes in place when you say, I disagree with you, but I'll still do what you've asked me to do. And of course, the caveat is, we don't do anything sinful, regardless if he tells us to. That's ununderstood. But submission comes into play, and only really into play, when you disagree with somebody. And Paul reminds them that we share in the responsibility of the gospel that's lived out in the work of the church. And to be subject then to, to your leaders. All of us have different gifts and abilities. But we all then work together in the shared responsibility of proclaiming the good news of Jesus. And the reason is, is because we have a shared faith. He goes on in verse 19, he even speaks of this, The churches of Asia send you greetings. Asia was a part of modern-day Western Turkey. That's where Ephesus was. And he's saying that the churches send you greetings. They're all of the same faith. And then he mentions Aquila and Prisca, some translations of Priscilla. Together, the church in their house sends you hearty greetings in the Lord. Now, Aquila and Priscilla were known in Corinth. They had been there when Paul first came, and they went on with him to Ephesus, it seems. And often Priscilla is mentioned first. Now, it could be very likely she came from a higher social class than her husband. But she was certainly a woman of great importance in the early church. And they had a home large enough to have uh, the church meet there. So they came from some means as well. But they were instrumental in the early missionary work of Paul and others. And he mentions others in verse 20. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. He's including the church in that whole area with the churches over there is saying, we are brothers and sisters. So much so, greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, we often think of the Mediterranean culture, French or uh, Italians kissing on the cheek, that sort of thing. Uh, it was a cultural form of greeting, and the, the Jewish people kissed on the lips. And I, I thought this c- quote was pretty, pretty telling in your bulletin. Jeffrey Wymah, he says, For others, a greeting kiss could be simply an expression of friendship and goodwill. But among Christians, it assumed a deeper meaning. It symbolized the unity, the belonging together of Christians in the church of Jesus Christ. The church expressed not merely friendship and love, but more specifically, reconciliation and peace. What a wonderful capturing of of that sentiment. Because cultural forms change. We, We recognize that. We don't do this in the same way. But the idea of a holy kiss has come into some churches as the passing of peace. And we read things like this, we just kind of breeze over, like, yeah, whatever, not doing that. But it's good to pause and to consider how we can do just that in maintaining the spirit of this type of greeting with one another. You see, it's an expression of love and acceptance that's not just reserved for really close friends or family members. It's an expression of love and acceptance that we are to give to brothers and sisters in faith that we have a heart that wants that kind of connection. And Paul, he then ends, he says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Now, he does this in several of his letters. He mentions himself doing this. Paul had um, a scribe to dictate his letters to. and, And here he would take the pen and he would sign out his own name and give the final greeting, a personal touch, expressing his love and his care to those he's writing to. Just as a side note, some people get a little troubled by this unnecessarily. Well, what if, what if the guy writing this down didn't get Paul's words exactly right? Well, Scripture is not Scripture insofar as it captures the exact words of any particular person. Scripture is Scripture because God governs all the circumstances of how His Word is given to us. That Word comes to us as God's oversight and protection. As God has given that not only to Paul, but even to those who are dictating for him. So he goes on, he says, if anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. For us, it's a little strange ending a letter with a curse. Final goodbye. But remember, Paul is calling on these Christians to covenant loyalty and faithfulness. Love for the Lord is expressed in the ways Paul has spoken of throughout his letter. And so this call to the covenant, we find that everywhere in the Old Testament. And Paul assumes that this mostly Gentile bunch of believers are also a part of that. That they are are called to the same faithfulness. (coughs) They're a part of the same church. And that Our Lord come is Aramaic And it's Maranatha You've heard that expression Maranatha, our Lord come And he's expressing this at the end of that statement Why? Because he's asking not only that Jesus would come quickly But that Jesus would establish his rule and reign He would bring forth his justice His kingdom Paul wants the culmination Of all things to now come Even as believers everywhere had that same sentiment. Oh, Lord Jesus, come soon. Come now. And he says in verse 23, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. One Christian writer, he summarizes this grace in a very succinct way. Again, we often think of the beginning part of Paul's letters, the end of Paul's letters that, yeah, grace, nice, you know, let's get rid of the the formalities and get to the heart of things. Well, no, this is the heart of things. Paul bookending these things together. And this writer says, Grace gives meaning not only to Paul's life and ministry, but to the very existence of every Christian. The opening and closing of Paul's letters make it clear that he recognized how utterly dependent he and his churches were on God's grace. And that he desires was that for this grace to be fully recognized and experienced in every Christian believer and in every church. Oh, a wonderful summary of that. The very heartbeat of Paul is the grace of God. And with that, he says, my love be with you all. Paul is not indifferent to them. And this hurts. He, he is somebody who is invested so heavily into their care and their good. And they are returning that with a kind of a stiff arm. But it's not slowing Paul's love down. It's not just a throwaway line. He's labored under very difficult circumstances to bring them the good news of Jesus. This is the love he speaks of in 1 Corinthians 13. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And Paul has been the model of this kind of love to a bunch of people who are not reciprocating it. Modeling even further, a continued love in the face of that indifference. He is committed to living in their mess with them. And the unity, or if you heard this phrase, the Catholicity of our faith, is not a secondary feature. That word Catholic that we recite in the creed, it's simply the Greek word meaning universal, which goes into the Latin, which goes into English, unchanged. It means universal. To speak of unity in this way, Catholicity, means we recognize the church is universal. It's one. It's not just us. So how we speak about other Christians, it matters. How we get along with other Christians matters. Truth and unity are not either or options. And it has always been hard to maintain the unity of the church in every age. Our current climate has added an extra layer of difficulty to this, to be sure. We've made it even harder to get along with people who disagree with you on things or to only be willing to be with a group that holds to everything you hold to or 9.5 out of 10. No, that's not what we're called. The Big C, the capital C church, always gets lived out in the small c, lowercase church. And because of that, we're we're sinners coming together in this difficult work. The grass is always greener somewhere else, especially from a distance. Like, oh, they do it so much better. They're a better, maybe. But if you got into that body, too, you realize, oh, they're filled with sinners, too. And maybe you've come from a green grass church and you're struggling with our brown. That's a part of this life of struggle that you get. To love us. To come and and to serve. And and in the midst of things, you're like, I like them better where I came from. This side of glory, it's a mess. It doesn't mean we give up. We don't try to fix and change things. We certainly do. But it means that we recognize we're sinners in the church. And we don't take our bat and ball and go home the minute we think that there's something we don't like or the minute that this very important thing to us isn't being done in the way we think it should or the time we think it should. We are connected to one another in the body of Christ and all this has to be done as a labor of love. It's costly. We work at it. Even more so with a a polarized community that we find ourselves in. How Everyone is going this way and that way and how difficult that is. Because we recognize, well, I, I hold the truth. Well, they, they hold the truth too. At least they, they profess that. I wish someone would say, I hold the unity. Truth and unity are not optional. They're not, well, I, I hold to this, you hold to that. They they take effort and work. Sometimes we do break unity because of the truth. We do. Far too often, we break unity simply because of either preferences or we just don't like somebody. And then we often attach a truth to that. No. It's hard work. It's messy. We're sinners. To live with one another in, in this time, in this place, is going to take great effort. And everything is just seeming to come part of the seams and moving in different directions. And so that means we choose to speak well of others. We choose to believe well, to be patient, to be kind, be loving, the very things that Paul has outlined in 1 Corinthians 13. It means at times we're going to stand and someone's going to say, well, you're unloving because you're standing for what's very clear to you and you're not being loving. And we'll take that accusation. And other times it'll be, well, you're not being truthful because you're, you're willing to be united with people who don't agree like you. And at times we'll have to take that accusation. Brothers and sisters, we are one in Christ. Work towards that unity. Work hard at living that out. Because the, the world, when they see the love we have for one another, they give glory to Jesus. That's what makes a difference. Arguing somebody down, I don't know about you, but I haven't seen that change very many hearts. A willingness to step in, to love somebody who disagrees with you because of the love of Christ, that changes things. And that's what we have been called to do. Maintaining the bond of peace, the unity of the church, maintain the truth, the doctrine of the church. And it, this side of glory is always going to be messy. And this side of glory, it is a precious jewel to be worked for. Because in the midst of that is the beauty and the radiance of Jesus, who calls sinners to himself, who calls sinners to repentance, who calls us to share in the love that we have for one another he receive the glory. Pray with me. Father, indeed, these are difficult things. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for, for hearts that are very much at times like the Corinthians. A party spirit, a divisiveness. And Father, we pray that you would grant us by your spirit wisdom and understanding. Lord, when to stand firm, when to, to join hand in hand. These, it can be so hard to know. But Father, we pray for that wisdom. We pray for that discerning heart. Lord, we pray for that love which desires to even make the effort. Because we belong to you. We are connected. We share in one Lord, one baptism, one spirit. We bless you for such a gift. We praise you, Father.